0: Patient No Longer is a podcast featuring leaders in healthcare who are inspiring a positive shift in the customer experience and human understanding. In this podcast, we interview people who are from all areas of healthcare that are impacting the healthcare consumer journey of care. My name is Ryan Donahue, Solutions Expert and Strategic Advisor with NRC Health. And it's a pleasure to host Patient No Longer, a podcast in search of what's new, what's next, and what makes healthcare human again. It's great to have you back with us on the Patient No Longer podcast. And in this particular episode, you're really going to enjoy exploring a great personal and professional story. Today we have with us Paul Coyne, who is Senior Vice President and Chief Nurse Executive at HSS, Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. Paul is also co-founder of Inspiring, an award-winning healthcare tech company whose flagship solution is known as Augie. Paul is an author, inventor, entrepreneur, public speaker. Thank you so much for joining us today, Paul. Thanks for having me. You've done a lot of work in the healthcare industry, in nursing innovation, in innovation around the patient experience, and some truly remarkable, quite futuristic innovations that you're going to cover here today. But you have a fantastic patient story as well. And so I would like to start our conversation today by asking you a little bit about a patient experience you had.
1: Thanks for asking that. Happy to chat about it. And actually the name of this podcast, Patient No Longer, I was looking at it and just thinking about it. And, and, you know, as we were talking before the show and you explained to me about what the words meant, patient no longer, one, being a patient and wanting to be more than a patient and not just be labeled as a patient, but more as a human being with much more to offer. And then also not being patient about it and wanting healthcare to change and all of us wanting healthcare to change is very applicable to me in my life. I was born with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a disease where the walls of the ventricle are too thick. And as a result of that illness, at the age of 10, was unable to play a competitive sports. At the age of 15, had an ICD, you know, pacemaker implanted in my chest. And then at the age of 22, suffered a left thalamic stroke as a result of the heart disease and had to learn how to talk and walk and regain all my memories again. And after I learned how to get all of those things back, I was at Goldman Sachs at the time. And so I was very capable of doing math. They thought I was shy because I didn't talk too much. When my brain was back to a place of being better, you still doubt yourself and you still feel not capable and you still feel like a patient and you still feel all of these things of vulnerability and you wonder if you're back. I just didn't want to feel that way anymore. And I wanted to help other people and I wanted to give purpose to what I went through and prove to myself that I was still capable and that I had something to contribute to the world and that I could have a life that mattered. So I went back to a lot of school for all those reasons and became a nurse. I got five degrees in a three and a half year period between 26 and 30. And everyone always likes to hear that part of the story, but it doesn't really feel like me anymore. Uh, I don't know if I'd do that now. Just thought it was what I had to do then in order to survive really and be fulfilled. And so I got a bachelor's, master's and a doctorate in nursing and, and an MBA and a master's in finance. And then I came out still with the heart disease, but feeling a little more capable and wanting to start my career in healthcare. So that was sort of my patient journey that led me to healthcare. And now the heart disease isn't gone. So I'm still a patient, but also now an administrator and sort of from both sides and try to put it together and help.
0: It's such an interesting reflective quality. And I just wanted to start there because, you know, you have this fantastic foundation of patient experience. And I think that everyone Tries to at least draw from a patient experience they've had to remember and walk in those shoes. It can be difficult to do, but with your story, it's something that stays with you every day. So I want to get to what you're doing now at HSS and your current role. Tell us a bit about that work for that great brand in New York City.
1: Sure. I've been fortunate enough to work at HSS for six years. The last 10 months, I had the privilege of being Senior Vice President and Chief Nurse Executive responsible for nursing across the enterprise and also other clinical departments really advocating for patient safety, quality, patient satisfaction, and really the frontline clinical staff that take care of our patients in all the ways that that manifests. The role is really a great opportunity for me. Hopefully, it's a great opportunity to make a difference for everyone that works there and in turn make a difference for all the patients that receive care there. It's really an honor and a privilege to work at such a great organization it's just every day a chance to learn really and grow and try to help others learn and grow. And at HSS, I talk about belonging and excellence and culture. And I think a lot of organizations just have excellence, but no belonging. If you picture them on an X and a Y axis, I think some have excellence and no belonging. Parts of healthcare, but really parts of people or companies or or the world. I think people need to have excellence and belonging. And I think HSS is the closest I've found, I'm sure there's other organizations that do it well too, but the closest that I've found that has both belonging and excellence. They're great concepts because you're able to always have more of them. You can always have more excellence, more belonging, but we have enough of them where it's great to go work there every day and then try to have more of them.
0: I want to dig in on belonging with a big capital B. You know, I'm intrigued by your view of that. And and one thing I've observed in Attending and speaking at lots of conferences over the years, as you start to get familiar with titles and as titles of topics and themes in the industry change, and you know, there's diversity, equity, inclusion, which we've covered on this podcast, and then you started to see belonging be added to that. And so, I'm interested in that because when I've heard some other people speak about belonging, I think sometimes they couch it within diversity, equity, inclusion. I think other times they sort of couch it as you know, there's this feeling as a workforce that leadership is out to get us. And, you know, the system is rigged and I'm burned out and I'm being told to be resilient, which I don't want to hear one more time. And so there's this feeling that I don't belong in that sense. So that's my rough take as an observer on these things. But I'd love to get your feel and your take for what Big B belonging means.
1: I think it means a desire to want the best for someone else and have them want the best for you. And if you do that together, and what's best for each other is excellence, right? So they go together. And when they go together, it's a multiplier of belonging and excellence. They're not additive, like either or, like the example that you gave of resiliency. When people say, be more resilient, sometimes that's implied that the person is not being excellent. And there's this disconnect because they're saying that if someone is resilient, that then they would be excellent. But the person who's saying it that person doesn't perceive that they're excellent or that they belong with them. So it's like a quote unquote other talking to you. And that's why I think, you know, a lot of the work that happens with DE and I, you know, systemic racism, all these terrible things that exist in the world, they need to be corrected and we need to correct them as best as we can. Also we need to recognize that we're all human beings and that everyone wants to belong. So I think divide, whether it's religions or countries or Political parties or races, or in healthcare, different groups, you know, doctors and nurses. Like you can have them separate, or you can say they're clinicians. And I think acknowledging the parts of people that are unique and accepting them for who they are and celebrating their unique differences while also trying to have everyone belong and remember that the parts of us that are the same need to happen. And in healthcare, you know, in the world, we do a lot of other as opposed to the same. But there's a way to reconcile those that I think belonging brings forth if you do both of those at the same time.
0: Yeah, there's a really nice, rich empathy that flows both ways. And it kind of reminds me of the golden rule. In the time of COVID and what we've all been through and coming back together, we definitely need in some cases a refresher on that. We love our tribes in terms of healthcare, which can be Many different shapes, sizes, titles, anything you could imagine that could divide us sometimes when it happens. And that includes patients who sometimes go into that situation and feel like they don't belong and they're on the outside looking in. So I'm curious one of the hats you wear being as a nurse executive, what's been your view of patient care and how it's perhaps changed by COVID or hasn't changed through the pandemic? But as we are sitting here in 2023 saying, what's the state of the patient experience? What's your take on that in patient care in this country right now?
1: I think sometimes in order to be excellent, particularly when it's challenging with another human being, there has to be a disassociation, sort of a rejection of belonging in order to be excellent in specific patient care circumstances. I was a palliative and end-of-life care nurse practitioner before moving into administration. And sometimes when you are faced with so much death tragedy, you can't fully empathize fully on belonging because you actually lose the ability to be excellent. So in order to be excellent, you have to sort of dial the belonging down and the parts that's the same as that patient, because if you don't, you won't be able to function because then you're extremely sad yourself. And they teach us this in palliative training that you can't get lost really is the term in the woe or the plight of the patient, because then you'll be unable to be excellent and take care of them. And in covid particularly for the frontline staff in some of the areas where there was just so much death and a feeling of the term is moral injury when you want to do the good, but you're unable to singularly do the good in this case, save everyone, which is what everyone would want to do. You're then left feeling like you weren't excellent enough. And so in order to remain excellent, you have to dial back the part of you that felt connected to that patient in order for you to preserve your own self and your own psychology that's a trauma that's happened across the front line of anyone that dealt sort of at the height of the pandemic that I think we're not talking enough about. That's like the extreme, like people who go to war or, or nurses or doctors who like served in the ED or the front lines of COVID. But just generally, I just don't think as a society, we're doing this very well. And people that go into healthcare want to do it well. That's why they went into healthcare. Because there's a part of them that does want belonging and excellence. They want to take care of patients. There's a part of them that wants to truly help another person. And the world is getting more and more set up. And it's through no one's fault. Some of it's great technology innovations, great things that make our lives more efficient. Sometimes those same things draw unexpected barriers that therefore between us, like the phone is a perfect example, or the way we communicate with each other, or charting, you know, these things are wonderful and they have a purpose, but they're drawing people away from remembering consistently why they went into the profession they went into. And so I think it's important for certain technologies to be implemented that alleviate that which blocks human interaction and rejoins that which does.
0: I can't wait to ask you about technology, but I'm going to stop myself for a second and go back to a part of your answer that really resonated with me and will resonate with some of our listeners. We had a guest last year, Dan Collard, of Healthcare Solutions Plus Group, who talked about how every new initiative that comes along, and let's take belonging, for example, to a lot of nurses and other people on the ground who have to deliver these things, it felt like another rock in your backpack. And I think what you say about, for example, excellence versus belonging, is being able to at least situationally take a rock out of your own backpack and say, I can't do all of these things, or I can't do this particular thing, because I need to be able to do this. And I feel like from The top down, sometimes you feel like you don't have permission to take a rock out of your backpack and that you've got to just continue to soldier on, so to speak, and do all these things together. And I really like the way that you talk about that. I'm going to ask you about another B. As a nurse executive, this word you've heard a thousand times, and it comes up a lot in nursing, and that's burnout. And I think I've snapped up 100 podcast speakers, other podiums on burnout, and I'm still not quite sure what we're going to do about it. I would love to hear your take just in the position you sit on the current state of burnout in U.S. healthcare.
1: I think macro level, there's this concept of work-life balance and the way that people usually begin to talk about burnout is to answer, well, we need work-life balance. That answer to me is not satisfactory. A human being is not meant to exist as one type of human in one setting and then all of a sudden magically exist in another setting like okay I work and now I have life like the balance part of it I think we very much talk about it and someone says I'm burnt out what are you doing for my work-life balance and that's like flexible hours or shorter shifts or those kind of things those are all great I'm all for giving clinicians a job that allows them to grow and flourish and have time to rest and recover But I think the mental construct of like, I'm working now and then now I'm living, I just don't find it personally fulfilling. I don't know if anyone really honestly thought deeply into it and thought about it, if they would think that they do. And I find that I'm more fulfilled if I have a way that I am in the world. I then fully go to work and I then fully, you know, live like with my family. It's a Wonderful Life is one of my favorite movies. And I think about what would the world be like if I wasn't here? And I try to make it every day more good than bad. No one gets to know like in that movie what it would really look like. But I just try to make it more good than bad. When I go to work, that's how I live. When I'm with my son and my wife, that's how I live. I'm the same. And I've chosen a career that allows me to do that. And so I'm not really looking for, quote, balance in the same sense of like, I'm this way now and then I punch off the clock and now I'm this way. I'm the same way when I work and when I don't work. And so I think there's a philosophical problem with the way that we're approaching work as humanity. Separately, in healthcare, I think that we need to do better. That's not the answer. That's like personal, introspective, philosophical things that help me. In healthcare, a person should do that. Healthcare as an industry should make it so that a person can do that. And I think healthcare has drifted from that in many ways. And frontline clinicians have been sort of set up to not be that. We've taken great people, taken the human interaction away, and given them burdensome tasks to do that aren't with the humans, and then wonder why they don't like that. (laughs) To me, it's just like, of course they don't. This isn't what they wanted to do. This isn't why they wanted to be a doctor or a nurse or any of these clinical roles, physical therapists. They didn't want to do this. They wanted to be with people. That's what fulfills them. And so it's very difficult for someone who has a philosophy or a life goal that's any similar to mine. I mean, it doesn't need to be exactly like mine, but it's human centric focused. and then taking most of the human part away from it that would then lead to burnout because then it just becomes work and then you're seeking to have balance in life. But really, we need to figure out how to have what you seek be in the workplace.
0: I think that's beautifully said. And I don't think we're exactly hiring and acquiring talent based on that particular pretext. That's really important because in healthcare, especially, we're not in this business to not be around human beings and have a human connection. So it drives us. It's our mission. It's what we consider sacred about healthcare. And I agree with you in the fact that a lot of that has been numb, down, and diminished, and we've tried to find ways around it, and there really isn't any. One of the things that I sometimes hear as a solution to burnout is that we just need more resources, and you know we generally have a shortage of people that can provide those services, and so we look to technology. And I'm interested in your take on that. Something's wrong with healthcare. We need technology. What's your take on that particular line of thinking? Is that true? Is it more complicated than that? Is it false?
1: Sometimes when I'm asked to give keynote speeches on technology, I talk about my grandmother. I was raised in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and every time we would go down Cape Cod for the summer to my grandma's house, she'd be tearing down one of the old cottages and building a bigger one. And my grandmother would say, does that one go? Like, is it going to go with the others? She had like a real Boston accent. She'd be like, it doesn't, does it go with the others? Does it fit? Does it fit in the neighborhood? And I'd say, God, I called her Guggy. I said, Guggy, what do you mean? I'd be ten. I'd be like, look at that big mansion. It's so wonderful. It's got these big houses, picture windows. Our little cottage doesn't have all those great new things. But she's like, I know, I know. But it, that doesn't go with the village. It doesn't go with the Cape Cod feel. It's just here, and, you know. It sticks out like a sore thumb, should say. And same thing with technology, right? If we have technology that fits into healthcare and it's new and it brings that feeling like the magic of that Cape Cod village like brings back the magic of healthcare and allows that to flourish then build a new house or in Cape Cod it's that'll be a great house it'll have heat and it'll be better but if you're just building some massive house in the village because you want to show off and you're wealthy and you came into the village and build a big house you're going to make my grandma pretty mad and when you bring technology into healthcare and it doesn't fit in the village of healthcare because you didn't take the time to know the people in the village and you didn't take the time to know what makes it special. And you just came in and said, oh, new tech. Then you make me mad, uh, just like my grandma. So that's the gist of the big speech. So my answer to technology is we just say it. People have no idea about the village or they've never ever worked in it. They're in Silicon Valley or they're a VC or they're just someone in their house that's like, let me start a tech company. They've never even gone into healthcare to like look around. That's not helping anybody, you know, go volunteer for a week and then come up with your business plan. I think technology, if invented and developed, and that's why I'm so passionate about clinician-led innovation and nurse-led innovation, physician-led, you know, because people who know best what makes healthcare special should naturally be the ones that lead the innovation. Really common sense. It's just unfortunately not what we're doing at all.
0: No one wants to make grandma mad, and no one should. And I really like that impression. I don't know your grandmother, but I feel like that was spot on. I love that idea of clinician-led innovation. I think there's a big difference there. Let's talk about another hatch you wear, which is as co-founder of Inspirin. You've won awards for some of this technology. You've got a particular device called Augie. This is some really interesting stuff that you're leading up, and you've got it rooted in healthcare and what's happening on the ground floor. Tell us a little bit more about that work.
1: Before going to HSS, I was in another major academic medical center, and I worked in analytics there. And my good friend from nursing school was a frontline nurse in the same hospital system. And I worked with a team of 30, 35 SQL developers and coders, and we made dashboards and all this stuff for the frontline. And he was a frontline nurse. And one day we were talking, and I said, how's all the stuff that we built? He didn't know any of it. I didn't know who we were building it for. And this disconnect became very apparent to us that all the work that we were doing somehow wasn't getting in the hands of the people who needed it most. I mean, if we're not delivering the data and the tools and building the dashboards so that nurses and doctors and frontline clinicians can provide better care, then who are we making it for? We were very excited about the opportunity to create something that solved that. And one of the hypotheses that we had was that in order to have it really transform, we would have to make a device that went into the patient room because then it would be visible and the clinicians would see it know what it was and be more inclined to seek the output of the data that it generated so we created this device and the journey you know obviously is this like any startup journey we raised funds and started a company and it was me and Mike Wong who's the founder in, of Inspiron and my good friend from college who's now the COO of Inspiron Vin Casido and the three of us, you know, got together and just kind of kept kicking ideas around until we found this brilliant person named John Gipps, who actually could bring it to fruition because none of us were hardware, you know, experts or had any idea about how to make hardware. It just continued to evolve over time and and became a hybrid sensing wall-mounted device that utilizes computer vision and Bluetooth low energy, the fusion of those two technologies and a concept known as edge AI or edge artificial intelligence to analyze both the physical and digital aspects of the patient environment. We do everything from know if a patient's getting out of bed, we alert so that we stop falls, we prevent pressure injuries because we know if the patient's moving, we track time spent with patients, we allocate nurse assignments based on this concept we came up with called nursing intensity, which is different than medical acuity because we knew that the most medically acute patient wasn't the one that was necessarily taking up the most of the nurse's time. You know, it's just been a wonderful journey. The company's doing very well now and, and successful and more importantly, saving lives. It's in numerous hospitals and nursing homes around the country and stopping people from falling, but also allowing clinical teams to be more efficient. And really, as I was talking about before, just have a peace of mind that the patient is safe because Augie is helping and alerting you if the patient's not safe. So you don't have that anxiety that causes burnout and a feeling of helplessness and also allowing teams to be more efficient with their time as Augie automates some manual things that a nurse or doctor needs to do.
0: If our listeners want to dig in on this, it's AUGI, and you can find it on the Inspiring website, which just ends in EN, and we'll post that to the description. But it is a really fascinating device. The one thing that I noticed is a lot of times technology in a patient's room is really one way and one sided. And it's something where the nurse or the physician is viewing a screen that you can't see or using some piece of technology that you don't know how to use yourself. And there can be an exclusionary factor here. This feels more like you're triangulating through Auggie, the nurse and the patient and sort of your equal parts. You know, Augie's there in the middle of both of them. And I found that to be really interesting as a different type of technology. What's your sense of the patient view of a tool like that, because we're going to see more and more of this from you and from competitors. Do patients tend to appreciate that presence? Do they like it? Do they dislike it? What are some of the feedback they give you?
1: We invested a lot of time up front to have it be aesthetically pleasing. I mean, it's a beautiful piece of of art, really. I was like, we don't have enough money for this. And, you know, Mike was like, no, it needs to be beautiful because the patient needs to love it. He would say not much in healthcare looks beautiful in that room. And this device is going to. He was 100% right, and it does. So I think number one is aesthetically pleasing. And number two is functionality. I think when, you know, we have two-way microphones and speakers in there now and other things that bring value immediately to a patient and allow them to feel safer, and also the patient's family feel safer, particularly in the nursing home and some of the skilled nursing facilities on on the dementia units where this is installed. You know, patients' families now have a peace of mind that their loved one isn't going to fall or that the loved one isn't going to wander.
0: It's interesting because I think sometimes patients view something that replaces a caregiver as less desirable because they want as much time as possible with that caregiver. This feels more like something that is clearly assisting the caregiver and allowing them to kind of be in places where they're not always physically present, but can certainly become physically present if necessary. Is that generally your sense. And you've been able to get over that fear of the patient feeling like, well, everything that's human is getting replaced.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, it's a, a, that's a bi-directional fear. The patient has that fear. And also the staff have that fear when you have a new technology that they're going to be replaced. We've gotten over that because that's not the case. That's why the name of it's Augie, to augment as opposed to artificially replace. And I think it's important distinction, you know, the augmented technology designed to augment staff and, and aid them versus artificial replacement of is an important distinction in healthcare for the reasons that you just outlined for the patient, but also for the staff, staff adoption as well. And also for patient care. I mean a robot or a AI cloud, not yet, maybe someday, but today they still can't care the way that a human can care. Until they do, I'll come back on and we can talk about that then. But until then, we have this as augmented because it enhances the care that the clinician can provide. And, and exactly right. I mean, one of the things that it does is balance nurse assignments. And one of the concepts that we have that we're exploring is if I have 20 patients on a floor and four nurses, and they're each going to take care of five patients apiece, which five patients do they get? And that assignment process, the data that we have to make that assignment is somewhat anecdotal. The charge nurse kind of does it. Sometimes they do it based off location, but Augie knows how much time other people have spent with the patients over the last 12 hours, and can make recommendations on, okay, this is how to more optimally balance staffing so that every patient gets the care that they deserve. And then for something like falls, you know, if you're in another room and patients getting out of bed, Augie will alert and let you see a stick figure version of what's happening in that room to ensure that you can go in that room if you want, or if it's safe, you know, okay, false alarm, it's safe. So, you know, I think exactly right, the triangulation is what's important. And both the patient and the nurse, or the physician, the clinician, knowing that they're not being replaced. But aided is where technology needs to go, and, and toward the earlier point, that's not where most technology is going.
0: A really important piece of that is your point on how there's fears on the patient side and fears on the caregiver side, and those bi-directional fears can be solved by a piece of technology, which is fantastic, and to me would strengthen the patient-to-caregiver bond, which is something... We definitely need to continue to focus on and strengthen, especially as we emerge from COVID. I do want to ask you in the world of tech, because I hear a lot about AI. We're using it everywhere, it's all over the place. I've seen people keynoting saying, you know, it's going to be really dangerous, you know, it's all fear based. And then I've seen other folks saying AI is like the only hope that's going to save us because we've got the workforce issues and the labor issues that we've had. Where do you come out on AI with your vast experience and direct experience? And sitting where you sit, what's the future of AI in healthcare?
1: Humans decide. It's like nuclear energy, right? Or nuclear fusion. You know, everyone's trying to do nuclear fusion now. I guess nuclear energy would be the best example, right? You can either have nuclear energy and make efficient power to save lives, or you can make a bomb. It's the same technology. (laughs) AI is no different. We decide until we make it so artificial that... (laughs) AI decides, (laughs) but until then, we decide. So I think that's really, I mean, that is my short answer. We decide. Like anything, when there's hype and there's excitement around something, it is potentially dangerous because no one has all the answers. We very quickly want them so badly that we trust anyone that appears to have them. People that are talking about AI, many people know about it they should be listened to but many people are just saying that their thing has ai in it so that they can make some money and feel important and feel better about themselves and look like they know what they're talking about at a conference you know i've been fortunate enough to work with you know and really be in this space and make technology that's won you know artificial intelligence awards for the work that it does and some of the machine learning algorithms that are inside the device and the brilliant scientists on our team who are far smarter than me in this area, you know, have taught me a little bit and I've been able to work with them on it, but nobody knows everything. But my answer is we'll decide if it's useful or or not. Really important that we get this one right.
0: You do get the sense in healthcare that we take certain terms and we just beat them into the ground. I mean, in my experience of 20 years, you know, (laughs) we talked so much about patient satisfaction, Then you couldn't say it anymore. And quality is something that, oh my gosh, you ask 100 people what quality is. They have 100 different answers because they've heard those from 100 different people who've said that they're experts on quality. And I think that that's so true of AI. Your point about how we use it is really refreshing. And I want to ask you, what's one use of AI that you would like to see in the next, let's say, five or 10 years Uh,
1: that could continue to improve? Yeah. Natural language processing in the room. Charting should be eliminated. There should be no clinician that is sitting in front of a computer checking off things that they've done. It's ridiculous. I mean, our web browser and our cell phones know everywhere that we've clicked since we've gotten phones 15 years ago. They have it all, but yet a nurse needs to click. I turned the patient. I just gave the meds. Click. I just did that. Click. I mean, hours of their time spent. And then a physician needs to chat with a patient and then either call somebody else to have them write down what he said. The EHR is a wonderful tool because it captures what we document. It's not reality. It's what we document. And I think AI, natural language processing, voice recognition, the Internet of Things, all of those things that happen and go into a room, we should get to a place where the burden of repeating any of your own actions in healthcare is lifted and you can care. We try to do that with Augie in the ways that we can, but it really takes a whole industry to achieve all of those use cases because all of those things that I just mentioned, NLP and IoT and all of that needs to come together in a, in a way where the clinician doesn't need to write down, what they just did. And as long as that happens, there's going to be burnout because every time that happens, you take the joy out of caring away. You're then caring to chart. You have a primary goal of charting, not a primary goal of caring. And I'm hopeful that AI will do that. The other thing is in diagnostics and imaging and alerts, you know, like drug-drug interactions is the best example. This is a primitive form of machine learning, but computers in the EHR, you know, you list all the meds and you give them and you go to introduce a new medication, this happens now. This is one of the first uses of the EHR, right? You you have five meds, you go to give med number six, and it says, okay, this one interacts with med number two. Do you still want to give it? Check. And the prescriber has to write, yeah, this is why. But I think AI can do that much better. And as the algorithms learn diagnostics and radiology and imaging and are able to read x-rays, I think The computer in some cases could catch what a human eye might miss and not replace, but just remind more. Like in that example, like, hey, did you look over here? This might look like a tumor. Tell me why it's not. Okay, it's not a tumor. Or for diagnostics, all right, this is everything that's happened to this patient in the last 24 hours. I saw the nurse go in 20 times. That's risk. Most everyone else, the nurse only went in five times. I saw a physician come in and I heard the words decompensation and potential you know malnourishment or words that were red flags and the computer says hey you know could this be sepsis you know like that kind of thing to initiate some of these protocols to save lives earlier because there's been an observer the entire time quote the artificial observer and if ai can consolidate through observations passive observations all of those things that are happening to that patient, particularly in the hospital, the AI could connect the dots that would otherwise have been missed because of all the different people that are taking care of that patient and not all sharing information with each other in an optimal way.
0: Well, the listening to you say it is a lot more hopeful than other speakers I've heard on the topic. And I'm going to take your word for a lot of that because I think it's it could be a really fascinating feature. And I think it's music to the ears of nurses who want to be there for their patients but are choosing between charting and eating their lunch and and some of those things that we're dealing with on the ground floor. Let me ask you this. You have sat in several seats in healthcare. You talk about the interactions between, you know, leadership and physicians and nurses and patients, and you've kind of been in every spot in the house in a way. How can we in the future improve the bond between those human beings? That's a part of this that I really hear kind of underneath everything you're saying is this restoring human connection and even using technology to do it.
1: I think technology hasn't evolved to a place where it really optimally allows us to do this. You know, one of the reasons why I'm hopeful, I mean, like I said, the EHR is a perfect example. Everything that we do needs to be documented. (laughs) Okay, why do we have to document everything that we do? So in current technology state, we do. If technology involves so that we don't, Everything's still documented and we cared for the patient. That's the most simple example. But I think there's a, there's an infinite amount of them in healthcare. Technology designed to restore that connection should be at the forefront of every decision. Every time something gets presented to me at HSS, you know, there's all these companies that call and they want to partner and all that stuff. It's the first question I ask them. What is the outcome? And they'll usually tell me something like, Well, your length of stay will go down, or oh, okay, what what else? And I say. And they're like, they get really confused. And I'm like, are you transforming healthcare or are you just, you know, saying all the things that you think I think are financially advantageous? That's a really important distinction, you know, just like belonging in excellence, you know, there's a way to do it. That's why it's up to humans. There's a way it's a, it's a more thoughtful way. It's a harder way, but it is the way. And we have to ensure that every piece of technology brings all of those people together and doesn't divide them. And, and it's really hard. Because everyone's trying to sell their little piece of the pie in healthcare and make money. And actually some people are capitalizing off the fragmentation. And so they want to keep the fragmentation because that they make money. they're like the consolidator of the fragmentation. So if the fragmentation went away, then what would they consolidate and they wouldn't have their business. We have to really do better. Create technology deliberately designed to solve that problem, but also apply the technology better. So that that doesn't happen, I and mean, that involves bringing you know the right people to the table, having clinicians and tech teams work together. You know, one of the things I'm really passionate about is nurse hackathons and physician hackathons. You know, I, I helped start a nonprofit called SanCL where it's now with a couple thousand nurses from around the world that are part of that. And one of the things they do that's really well is pick people from Microsoft and have them come for the weekend, and we have these full weekend events where frontline clinicians and computer coders form teams together and come up with ideas. There's not enough spaces where people are in the room together to do this, where the frontline staff takes care of patients and goes home. And tech people keep making tech things. And never the two shall meet, as my grandma used to say, you know, another quote from my grandma, that's just completely the wrong. And then we wonder why it doesn't get fixed. It's like they should have talked at the beginning. I'm hopeful. I think technology is evolving to a place where we'll be able to see more human interaction and in like in the ways that I've talked about with NLP and IoT and all of that. And I hope that we as people all decide to use the technology in the, in the optimal way.
0: Well, and if we do that, I think it dissipates the confusion and the fear and the things that we see when people aren't sure what's going to happen with technology or don't understand it. Or like you say in your example, don't just get together from the beginning and cooperate and build and be a true team here. And I love what you said about fragmentation, and and we really need to defrag the system in a lot of ways. You've had such a fascinating journey in healthcare, uh, but let's say you find yourself in an elevator at HSS, and across from you is one other person, and they are starting day one in their career. What is a piece of advice that you would give them as they step forth in their healthcare journey?
1: You know, I actually do this thing where one person a day... I give a half hour of time to really, they give it to me. But my mom's like, why do all these people want to talk to you that long? Who are these people that want to spend that much time? And I'm like, mom, people want to talk to me. So it ends up being a half hour long. And one, I usually tell them that to never forget why you got into this and and to treat everyone the same. The patient, the same. The CEO is the same. They're all humans. Be respectful, obviously, but don't forget everyone's human. And the second thing that I say when people really want to grow in their career. A lot of people, when they grow, they get very hyper-focused. Like the concept of like a a polymath or like a Ben Franklin or, you know, these people of yore, the world was much different back then and people did numerous things. And when you do numerous things with your mind, you're able to blend multiple concepts together. And I think our world wants people to be so specialized that it's very challenging. One of the reasons that I've been successful is because there's numerous. Parts, you know, my brain. I talked about the stroke. I was just trying to get it back. I didn't realize I was even doing this. But looking back, I was developing different parts the business part, the finance part, the IT part, the clinical part, the human part, the part that feels like a patient, the part that feels like a provider. Like all of that together, I don't think we celebrate enough. And I think for personal fulfillment, but also success in order to really be successful, you can't be a one trick pony, I guess is the term. You know, like if you're in IT, I tell you, take the time to learn about the clinical side. If you're in clinical, I say, why don't you talk to finance? Why don't you talk to IT? If you're in finance, I say, why don't you go talk to IT? That multi-pronged view of being a complete person, I think is more fulfilling, more important than a career. I think it's more fulfilling to a human and helps with the burnout and helps with work life, like I talked about before, but also makes you far more valuable in the workplace. And unfortunately, that's not the way American jobs are set up anymore. It's harder. You have to do your job be successful at it, but then in your own time, figure out what other things you can learn that can make you different and contribute to the world in a way that that other people can't.
0: Well, I think that's fantastic advice. I think, you know, we're very grateful that you spent your half hour, so to speak, with us today and uh, everyone listening in. And I think you're right. Everybody's dynamic. And, you know, that's been our mission at NRC Health is underneath it all, we're humans and we do more than one thing. And I think there's a lot of value in that. And certainly you are a great example of that, Paul. It's been fantastic to think about your work, talk about the different hats that you wear, and really exciting to track where you are now and where you're going in the future. So we will continue to do that. Again, we'll post all of your information in the description for those listening in, if you wanna click in, do more of Paul's work and learn more about him. And for now, we will bid adieu, but just thank you one more time for sharing your insights with us today.
1: Thanks for having me. Really, really enjoyed it.